Have you ever had a million-dollar idea? Or is that just a notion reserved solely for geniuses? I was recently listening to an old episode within the Nerdist podcast archives, which, by the way, now goes by the name ID10T, and Chris Hardwick was interviewing the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson who, as a side note, I once stood in a torrential rainstorm for an hour to hear speak before They Might Be Giants concert. So, who's a nerd now, huh, Hardwick? (laughs) Anyway, they were just having a great conversation, and they got on to the topic of how our society seems to equate getting good grades with being smart. And Neil suggested that truly smart people are creative. And he added that grades are an irrelevant and inaccurate way of measuring intelligence. Which is great news for all of us, right? Every person is creative in his or her own unique way. And, newsflash, not every millionaire is a genius. I'm sure you can think of at least a few rich idiots, can't you? Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that all wealthy people are moronic by any means. I am merely pointing out that smartness is not a prerequisite for being rich and prosperous. You don't have to have a particular degree or even good grades in school to achieve monetary success. Just an idea. Even an absurd idea. Perhaps the most famous inventor ever, Thomas Edison, said, quote, To invent, you need a good imagination and a pile of junk. No place else is this better evidenced than amid all those as seen on TV commercials for products like Furniture Fix, a bunch of plastic slats that slide under cushions of an old depressed couch full of ass grooves to make it firm again, or Space Bags. Those giant Ziploc sandwich baggies for sweaters and blankets that you vacuum the air out of. Or bowl light, because everybody likes toilet time to be more like a disco. Or even flex seal. Do you think Phil Swift would dare take his screen door bottom boat coated with flex seal out on the Atlantic Ocean? And the zany products don't stop there. Consider the topsy tail. Bedazzler. Abs Cruncher, Crunch with a K, Bake Pops, The Wonder Wallet, The Wallet That Holds 24 Cards, My Pillow, Sham Wow, Pillow Pets Huggable Pillow, The Slap Chop, Perfect Tortilla, Seat Pets, Stuffed Animal Seat Belt Covers, The Get Up and Go Cane, Chia Pets, and a late to the party game changer, The Snuggie a.k.a. sleeve blanket, a.k.a. backwards robe, the full body-sized garb made of nylon or fleece fashioned in an endless variety of colors, patterns, and designs for kids and pets. When the Snuggie debuted in 2008, it sold for $14.95 apiece, but because of supply and demand, they were able to raise the price to $19.95 within the same year a 25% increase. The cheesy television commercials, along with plugs from morning television shows like Today, made the Snuggie a bona fide household name and surprising bestseller, netting its producing company, All Star Products, over $200 million in the first year. I bought a leopard print one for my wife as a gag gift because we had always laughed at the commercials together, And she loves the thing. Our cats, too. And Snuggies aren't just for lounging around at home, according to the ads. You can wear them in the bleacher seats of a football game. Or even go out on a Snuggie pub crawl, which apparently do exist and are popular in cities like Chicago and Cincinnati. Scattered curiosity, the Snuggie was originally called the Freedom Blanket. And it is not the only backwards robe on the market. There is the Toasty Wrap, 
with its toasty spokesman, Montel Williams, the Dujo, which is a German incarnation of the comfy, wumpy vendable that has a fixed accessory of gloves built onto the sleeves, an innovative bonus. Italy has its version of the Snuggie called the Kanguru, and it is constructed with a pocket in the middle similar to its namesake marsupial, the Kanguru. And let's not forget the Wuggie, the blue-colored Snuggie endorsed by the band Weezer. There's also the Snuggler and the appropriately named Slanket, which actually preceded the Snuggie by 10 years. Although some argue that Dr. Seuss may have had the jump on all of these brands with an outfit worn by the title character to one of his most beloved children's books, the Lorax, who wears the similarly fashioned Thneed. Bonus curiosity, in 2017, a court ruled that the Snuggie and the offshoot products like it are not clothes, but blankets. Why does that matter? Because tariff rates for non-domestic blankets are 8.5%, but it's 14.5% on imported pullover apparel, a significant 6% gap. In honor of all the dreamer-uppers who gave us these products, And for all of you dreamer-uppers out there determined to morph your ideas into products, much like I do with this podcast, I thought the topic of how some other simple ideas came to market might be an appropriate way to get our creative juices flowing together to kick off Season 2 of Scattered Curiosities. This is Inventionation. The prime example of proving that any person could execute a million-dollar idea in my estimation has got to be the resourcefulness of the pet rock. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this mid-1970s novelty, pet rocks were these smooth stones of varying sizes that had googly eyes affixed to them and were packaged in cardboard boxes akin to the ones you might get in an animal shelter when adopting a cat or dog, fashioned with breathing holes and straw bedding. The Pet Rock Kit was also equipped with a 32-page handbook called The Care and Training of Your Pet Rock that included a catalog of tricks that every pet rock automatically knows how to do right out of the box, like sit, stay, and play dead. The handbook also gave instructions for teaching more complicated tricks that require hands-on assistance from the owner, like roll over and fetch. The pet rock was the brainchild of Gary Dahl, who got the idea while he was hanging out in a bar with his buddies and listening to them complain about their dogs, cats, hamsters, and pets in general. This got Gary to thinking about what would make the perfect pet, a creature that didn't need affection, food, a bath, a veterinarian, or to be taken for a walk the very characteristics that can be attributed to a rock. His friends laughed at him. He laughed all the way to the bank. The fad took hold for about six months from the time of its debut during the Christmas season of 1975, making Gary a millionaire by only selling the product for $3.95 each, $3 of which went to Dahl himself. The oddball fascination quickly found its way to the dustbin of history. However, the pet rock did make a brief resurgence in 2012, but the vicissitude didn't quite catch on as it had 37 years prior. So if you want one, 
I suggest building your own. It would be so simple. As simple as the idea of our next most genius apparatus, the hula hoop. A plastic tube molded in the shape of a circle, powered via the centrifugal force generated by the motion of the hips, neck, or limbs of the user. The design has gone virtually unchanged for 60 years and costs next to nothing to produce. And although most of us associate the hula hoop with the 1950s and 60s, human civilizations have been using hoops made of dried grass, willows, or grapevines for thousands of years in similar ways. In fact, the activity was so popular in 14th century England that doctors were treating patients suffering from back injuries caused by hooping. The first hula hoop, hula stemming from the hip-swaying dance native to the islands of Hawaii, to make bring returns, was originally developed with bamboo and marketed by the Whammo Toy Company as exercise hoops. And through the combination of advertising, free giveaways, and Georgia Gibbs singing the hula hoop song on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1958, 25 million hula hoops were sold in the first four months that they were on the market, and they continue to be a familiar staple of pupillage to this very day. Another childhood favorite, which costs virtually nothing to produce and requires no engineering skills whatsoever to manufacture, is the board game Twister. Basically, a plastic tarp patterned with six rows of four mixed dotted colors accompanied by an arrow-shaped spinner coordinating the colors on the mat to the player's hands and feet. A toy designer by the name of Charles Foley had the idea of using humans as pieces in what he called a party game. However, his employer's son, Rain Geyer Jr., claimed that he came up with the idea of using humans as playing pieces in a life-size game that he called King's Footsie in 1964, which never went into production. But it would take the artistic eye of Neil Rabins to complete the vision of Twister. Now, Rabins was this artist who was hired by Charles Foley to do all of the illustrations for his toy designs when he would do product presentations for Milton Bradley and to do the illustrations on the packaging and advertising for all the toys he developed. It is Rabin's who had the notion of using the mat as a playing field and covering them with dots colored yellow, blue, red, and green. And it was an idea that he had devised years earlier while attending the Minneapolis School of Art and Design. Foley and Rabins knew they had something, ran with the abstraction, and called the new game Pretzel. But before Charles Foley could receive patent 3454279 for his new recreational pastime, he needed to rename it because Pretzel was not available. So his good friend at Milton Bradley suggested he change the name to Twister. Commencing sales were moderate, but would transform exponentially as a nationwide phenomenon after Johnny Carson played the game with Ava Gabor on The Tonight Show in 1966. It was an overnight success. Although conservative critics of the time deemed the pastime to be, quote, sex in a box. Milton Bradley, who had since bought the rights to the game that it helped to name, did damage control and marketed Twister as a wholesome, healthy game that was inclusive to all ages and languages. The rules are so easy. Put your hand or foot on the dot selected by the spinner or caller. In a two-person game, colored spots on the playmat cannot be shared, but that rule does not apply in situations with multiple players. If a player's knee or a player's elbow touch the floor or they fall, 
they are out. The last person standing, or off the ground as it were, wins. Twister was awarded Game of the Year in 1967 greatly because of its affordability and worldwide appeal, a product ripe for globalization. Twister proudly holds a place in the American National Toy Hall of Fame alongside other favorites like the Hula Hoop, G.I. Joe, Barbie, Raggedy Ann and Andy, Hot Wheels, The Game of Life, Frisbees, the Atari 2600, the Jack in the Box, Scrabble, Silly Putty, Candyland, Jump Ropes, Rubik's Cube, Kites, Slinkies, Clue, Legos, Lincoln Logs, Crayons, Little Green Army Men, The Swing, Marbles, Teddy Bears, Monopoly, Yo-Yos, Mr. Potato Head, Nintendo Game Boy, Easy Bake Ovens, Viewmasters, Erector Sets, Play-Doh, and Etch-A-Sketches, just to name a few. Battleship, also commonly called Sea Battle, is a game that is as old as World War I France, back when it was called Le Tac, and all a player needed was a pencil, paper, and the ability to draw a numbered grid to strategically place their destroyer, submarine, cruiser, battleship, and carrier by shading spaces on their grids with the aforementioned pencils to represent the aforementioned sea craft. Players would then proceed to go back and forth guessing attack coordinates. And that's how the game was played until the 1930s when pre-gridded game pads were being printed by various companies worldwide with competing game names such as Warfare Naval Combat, Broadsides, a game of naval strategy, and Combat, the battleship game. And the game continued to trend that way until Milton Bradley once again put its experts on the case and developed the board game version in 1967 that involved plastic ships that were put onto a gridded pegboard and employing red and white pegs to represent hits and misses. And ten years later, Electronic Battleship introduced a vast improvement on the non-electric version of this truly boring game, allowing players to secretively enter their pre-programmed coordinates into a computer board, which gave the attacker a satisfying sound effect of a successful explosion or a dudful splash in the middle of an unspecified parcel of one of Earth's oceans. Then... Out of nowhere, for some bizarre reason, director Peter Berg, along with the all-star cast of Rihanna, Alexander Skarsgård, and Liam Neeson, made a feature film based on the board game in 2012, with alien targets to fire upon instead of opposing naval forces. And then Milton Bradley turned around and made a version of the game based on the movie. Oh, Hollywood, what happened to you? Although I can't wait for the epic Hungry Hungry Hippos trilogy to come to life, if they could just get Daniel Day-Lewis out of retirement to play the coveted role of Homer Hippopotamus, the green one. And yes, the Hungry Hungry Hippos do have specific color designations. Lizzie is the purple hippo. Henry is the orange hippo, and Harry is the yellow hippo. Contrary to Electric Battleship, which was a modification that greatly enhanced the enjoyability of the original inception of the game, when Monopoly came out with its computerized versions of its classic enterprise that operated with the use of credit cards instead of paper money, I just couldn't get into it. I like the paper money. And... I find it to be a useful tool for helping kids learn to count. The game also helps anyone understand the concepts of taxes, auctions, mortgages, refunds, borrowing money with interest, and 
dealing with the emotional distress triggered by the insulting $10 that you are awarded for winning the beauty contest. The Parker Brothers have been able to keep sales steady since acquiring the rights to this game that they did not even invent with their reinvention of the game hundreds of times over by releasing specially themed and limited edition versions of the game. Starting when they acquired the rights to Monopoly in 1935 and introduced the little metal pewter playing pieces for the game also commonly referred to as tokens. You know, the thimble, the top hat, the cannon, iron, boot, battleship, and everybody's favorite, the dog. These were soon followed by the race car, a purse, a rocking horse, and a lantern just one year later. And while they have been experimenting with different tokens throughout the decades, the current tokens in a 2018 edition of the classic game has the original battleship, top hat, race car, and Scottish terrier, but it has replaced the thimble, wheelbarrow, shoe, horse, and iron with a T-Rex, a penguin, a cat, and a rubber ducky. The electronic version of Monopoly that we talked about just a second ago its tokens are a baseball bat, a space rocket, a Segway, a small dog in a bag, and an Altoids container. And while I generally shirk from deviations of original game designs, I do like the wide variety of themed Monopoly game boards and specialized tokens that are available, catering to just about any fan base out there, obscure as some of them might be. For example, the Walking Dead Monopoly features the tokens of Rick's hat, which became Carl's hat, and spoiler alert, is now Judith's hat, an RV, a telephone, a cantata sword, Lucille, a barbed wire-covered baseball bat, and a bucket of body parts. And the properties that are in the game match the plot lines that take place in specific locations to each season of this truly excellent show. The Beatles version of Monopoly was the first officially sanctioned board game to be licensed with a Beatles theme. And the properties for this version are the Beatles albums in chronological order. Please Please Me, With the Beatles, Introducing the Beatles, the Beatles' second album, A Hard Day's Night, Something New, Beatles for Sale, Beatles 65, Beatles 6, Help, Rubber Soul, my favorite album, Yesterday and Today, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Magical Mystery Tour, The Beatles, a.k.a. The White Album. It was not called The White Album. We just call it that. It was simply labeled The Beatles. Yellow Submarine, Abbey Road, Hey Jude, Let It Be, and Park Place and Boardwalk are Abbey Road Studios and Apple Studios. Chance cards are the Fab Four cards. Community chess cards are Beatlemania cards. Railroads are replaced with concert tickets. The Electric Company and Waterworks become Shea Stadium and Candlestick Park. The Income Tax is the Taxman. Luxury Tax is Ticket to Ride. And the currency is love money, because all you need is love, and money can't buy you love. The houses are colored white and called listening parties, and the hotels are colored black and called concerts. And the tokens highlight some of the band's songs, with a walrus, I am the walrus, a hammer, Maxwell's silver hammer, a strawberry, Strawberry Fields Forever, an octopus, octopus's garden, a raccoon, rocky raccoon, and the sun, referencing either here comes the sun or possibly the sun king. John Deere Monopoly honors world-changing equipment produced by the historic American company with its tokens of the revolutionary John Deere plow that started it all, the 650H dozer, the L110 Lawn and Garden Tractor, 
the Model B tractor, and the 9620 tractor. Disney Villains Monopoly tokens are all headpieces of classic Disney villains such as Captain Hook's hat from Peter Pan, Frollo's hat, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Jafar's hat, Aladdin, Maleficent's horn, Sleeping Beauty, the Evil Queen from Snow White's crown, and the Mad Hatter's hat, which seems weird to me because I do not consider the Mad Hatter to be a villain. I mean, the Queen of Hearts wants to cut off Alice's head for crying out loud. Coca-Cola Monopoly has a delivery truck, a polar bear, a bottle cap, a fountain dispenser, a Coca-Cola Santa, a contour bottle, a contour glass, and an original Coke bottle for tokens. Its houses are six packs of Coke, and the hotels are Coke vending machines. And I gotta be honest with you, I do not know one person who likes Coke enough to give them this version of the game or the next incarnation, Sephora Monopoly. Yes, Sephora, the cosmetics company. Its fashionable take on the game comes with a compact, mascara, a mirror, lipstick, a hairdryer, and powder brush for tokens. The properties are Sephora beauty products, railroads are Sephora experts, the luxury tax is a primping tax, I'm not sure why they had to change that one, income tax is a city tax, houses are Sephora bags, Hotels are Sephora stores, and the dollars are beauty bucks. And some honorable mentions of other Monopoly versions out there are ACDC, A Christmas Story, Betty Boop, Elvis Presley, Family Guy, Grand Theft Auto, Harley Davidson, I Love Lucy, The Justice League, M&M's, The Candy, not The Rapper, Marvel Comics, Metallica, NASCAR, Pokemon, Pirates of the Caribbean, Sonic the Hedgehog, Star Wars, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Office, Transformers, and that is just a small sampling of themes that have been custom molded to this game, despite the fact that many of them have nothing to do with money at all. And I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you that the Monopoly board that we have here at our house is the Simpsons version of Monopoly, which uses Jebediah Springfield, Homer, Bart, Santa's Little Helper, Blinky the Three-Eyed Fish, and Kang the Alien for tokens. And for an even more in-depth look at Monopoly, go back and listen to episode 3.1 of Scattered Curiosities, titled Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians Part 2. The opening monologue discusses the game in further detail. I also talk about John Deere's origin story in that episode as a bonus. Turns out, he's not from Krypton. Another pad and paper game that holds a sweet spot in my heart and could have been invented by anyone are Mad Libs. I imagine you all know what Mad Libs are, but for those of you that don't, they are these short stories that have the nouns, adjectives, verbs, occupations, liquids, and other random words removed and replaced with blank lines to be filled in with new words that are suggested by the participants of the game. The educational amusement was invented in 1953 by Leonard Stern and Roger Price, but... They didn't have a name for it until five years later when they were sitting in a diner in New York City and they overheard this actor who was in a heated discussion with his agent right near their table and the actor was asking his agent to ad-lib with him to prepare for an audition that he had coming up. And the agent said, that would be mad. Adlib became Madlib, and there you have it. Fortunately for Stern and Price, 
Leonard Stern was also the head writer for the Steve Allen Show. And he realized that it would be the perfect platform to debut their new wordplay game by having the studio audience fill in the blanks for the performers on stage. There are over 70 editions of Mad Libs, including such titles as Dysfunctional Family Therapy, Keepers and Losers, Scooby-Doo Halloween Mad Libs, Mad Libs for President, Indiana Jones Mad Libs, Fear Factor Mad Libs, Ultimate Gross Out Mad Libs, and WWE Mad Libs. Scattered Curiosity, Mad Libs also went Hollywood with a short-lived game show of the same name that aired on the Disney Channel from 1998 to 1999 which is something I definitely would have watched were I a kid when it aired. The game show was played by two teams consisting of two kid members wearing either red or blue t-shirts, and the show was divided by commercials into four regulation rounds and a bonus round consisting of five tiers for the winners. The first round to play was titled Viewer Mad Lib and featured a video of a fan at home reading a Mad Lib, which would be incorporated into some kind of stunt to accomplish as much as they could of in 45 seconds. The winners got 20 points. If both teams finished the stunt, they both got 20 points. In round two, called Matter Than You, the host gave them a topic, let's say condiments, and the players would come up with as many of the words as fit the category as they could while passing a ball called the hot potato back and forth until a word was given that either didn't fit the category, a word that was repeated, or until the two-minute timer went off. The winners earned five points. Third round was the mega stunt. Each segment of the mega stunt had a word attached to it, and the objective was to match four words in four different categories, and by doing so, completing the Mad Lib and earning 20 points. During round four, labeled Mixed Up Mad Libs, the host read sentences with zany words in them as a kid from each side faced off a la Family Feud, and had to buzz in to correct the zany word. If a player guessed wrong, the other person got the opportunity to answer. Then the teammate switched. This final round of regulation play lasted 90 seconds, and every correct response was worth 10 points. And whoever had the most points went on to the bonus round, while their competitors went home with their consolation prizes of Mad Lib books. The bonus round duo then had to decide on a giver and a receiver. And the giver would pick five words from an envelope and had 90 seconds to get their partner to guess the words using a method in the clue areas of the five tiers that I mentioned earlier. In tier one, called Stuff It, the giver had to speak the first word with four marshmallows stuffed in their mouth and try to get the receiver to say the word. Tier 2 was either Lick It, where the giver wrote the word with their tongue in cake frosting, or Spell It, which was the same as Lick It, but the word was instead to be written out with ketchup and mustard bottles. Tier 3 was Draw It, pretty self-explanatory. Tier 4 was Act It, in a similar fashion to Charades. And Tier 5 was one of these three challenges. Mold It, where the giver used Play-Doh to shape the word. Rip It, which was very much like Mold It, except using paper, kind of like origami. And the last was Sing It, giving clues while singing. If the team got all five right, they went home with the grand prize. 
I would love to play a version of this game for grown-ups. Before I continue, I thought I'd share with you some tidbits of advice that I compiled from accomplished inventors on how to go about turning your ideas into reality. The first injunction recommended is to ever be inventing by always keeping a pen and paper with you. Or, if that's asking too much, you can simply use the notes feature on your cell phone. It is essential to keep a journal or logged record of your inventions that entails descriptions that can be understood by anyone. To that point, you'll likely find it a worthy investment to hire a professional artist so that they can take care of drawing up blueprints for your design if you are not a capable virtuoso in that regard. And within your invention journal, it is paramount that you include the dates that you worked on it and in what capacity. Don't forget to keep a timeline of events that pertain to the evolution of your enterprise, the problems that arise along the way, in addition, to the troubleshoots and solutions to those problems. Supplementary to that, it is advocated to obtain signatures from any witnesses to the work you do, if possible, without telling too many people about your million-dollar idea. It is important to notate your failures as well as your successes because those lessons could come in handy in future inventions. Sometimes writing out the problem helps a person visualize the solution because it's inside of their subconscious. Like if I write out a grocery list but forget to bring it with me to the store, I'm more likely to remember the items on the list than if I hadn't written anything at all. Your brain is like a muscle, and the more you use it, the stronger, faster, and healthier it becomes. You may not ever work on some of your journal entry inventions past the concept phase at all, but your efforts might assist the advancement of future innovators. For example, the year after Christopher Columbus made his infamous journey overseas, Leonardo da Vinci was sketching the prototype for a helicopter that he designed. 450 years before helicopters as we know them became a reality. That said, do not invent a helicopter. Keep your first contraption simple so you can actually build a prototype. I cannot stress this enough. Because of the costs, it will save you right out of the gate. Like, have you ever seen these outdoor drink steaks that are these poles that you corkscrew into your lawn with two drink holding rings at the top that you put in your backyard during a barbecue? Brilliant doable, or the cup holder umbrella. Man, people love cups, huh? And this one is great for apartments. The fashionable ironing board that can be flipped up into a floor mirror. Other simple inventions are men's neckties that have microfiber lining on the back for cleaning glasses, and a hollowed out hairbrush or binocular flasks. My barnoculars were confiscated by a gate attendant at Yankee Stadium, and I promptly gave them a Bronx cheer. <laughs> oh yeah, don't forget safety pins, paper clips, post-it notes, nails, and the wheel. So simple. I saw this super cool invention online that I wish we had here in New York City. They are these street benches that have a crank on the side so that you can roll the seat bench for a clean or dry sitting area after a rainstorm or those unfortunate bird droppings. But this one is a little more technically involved than the neckties that have the microfiber lining on the back. As I stated before, it is better to save the high-tech objectives for when you make your first million dollars and can hire people to do the more technical stuff. Unless that is your specialty. 
you can get confirmation of your invention's availability easily by doing some investigatory work using google.com backslash patents. Furthermore, you should ask yourself important questions like, is your idea new? What problem does your idea address? Are there markets for your idea? What companies fall within those markets? Is the idea physically possible? What's your goal for the idea? And will it sell enough to be worth it? A quick way to calculate the worth of your product is if you can recover 20 times the total cost of the process of inventing and patenting your idea, you got yourself a winner. Keep in mind that payment to your lawyer and fees for filing any paperwork should be factored into these final costs. Finally, how will you present your materials to investors and the world? Branding is vital. Think back to all those as-seen-on-TV inventions we talked about in the intro. Cheesy, low-budget commercials and spelling words with a K instead of a C are trends that seem to be working well for a lot of goods out there. But whether or not you have difficulty answering these questions, it is also within your best interest to learn about the business related to your invention. Get to know what's out there and how yours is different and better. Just because you don't see it in stores doesn't mean someone hasn't patented your design or something like it. And some sources I have found even suggest that if there is nothing like your product out there, it might actually work against you because it could mean that there is not a market for such an asset. But we are not descended from fearful men. Take risks, calculated risks. And just like anything else, if you want to be good at inventing, learn more about inventors. Not only will you absorb the different processes that successful inventors have gone about their business, but it will likely encourage you to persevere through your hardships. Many inventors are not successful on their first, second, or even third try. Being part of an inventive community can do wonders. Join an inventors club or even start one yourself. The internet has made this step ridiculously simple. Scattered curiosity, one market that the experts have deemed to be quite welcoming to newcomers getting their foot in the door is with gadgets for the kitchen. And while doing research for this episode, I actually came across a couple that I thought were pretty genius, like the sauce dispensing chopsticks, which have these plastic refillable handles at the top that function a bit like a turkey baster for squirting the desired amount of flavor into each bite without drowning your food in soy sauce. I also found the perfect implement to cater to the laziness of humankind, the heated butter knife. Now let's get back to more simple inventions. The popsicle was invented in 1905 by an 11-year-old named Francis William Epperson in the same manner that several innovations are discovered. By accident. Little Frank Epperson was a young entrepreneur that made his own sweetened drinks by adding flavored powder to water. And one chilly day, he haphazardly left some of his beverages outside his house overnight with a mixing stick that he used to stir the powder still within the sample. And when he awoke to the frozen concoction, he knew he had something good, both tasting and for business. Fast forward 17 years to a social function for firefighters where his frozen confectionery, the Epsicle Ice Pop, was reported as being, quote, a sensation. The following year, he was selling his product at Neptune Beach in Almeida, California, when his own kids invented a better name for their father's invention and 
pressured him to change the treat's moniker to the Popsicle just in time for Mr. Epperson's patent on the product to finally be approved. And just one more year after that, Francis William Epperson sold the rights for his childhood delicacy to the Joe Lowe Company in New York. In the span of just 20 years, Little Frankie's frozen mishap has had an effect on just about every person in the United States and paved the way for the creamsicle, the dreamsicle, and the fudgesicle. Originally, a treat that was labeled and pronounced fudgicle. And the initial advertising for popsicles was pretty genius too. The 1939 radio show Buck Rogers in the 25th Century debuted a mascot for the wood-handled sweet by the name of Popsicle Pete, who encouraged fans of the show to mail in their Popsicle wrappers in exchange for some pretty awesome prizes. A Buck Rogers storybook for 30 wrappers, a bracelet for 35 wrappers, a baseball bat for 75 wrappers, a table tennis set or a traveling first aid kit for 150 wrappers, a Pinocchio doll for 350 wrappers, a dartboard or roller skates for 400 wrappers, an electric toaster for 450 wrappers, an alarm clock or a set of poker chips for 500 wrappers, a watch for 700 wrappers, and a radio for 2,000 wrappers. Popsicle Pete was the poster boy for popsicles until 1995, making a brief resurgence in 2014 in the form of a video game and a comic book. The popsicle brand was bought by Good Humor in 1989. Another product that was invented by a kid as a result of cold weather, earmuffs. First conceived by Chester Greenwood when he was only 15 years old on a frosty day that he was spending outside ice skating in Farmington, Maine in 1873. After unsuccessfully attempting to keep his scarf wrapped around his head all day, he went home fitted a pliable metal wire to his noggin, and had his grandmother stitch tufts of beaver skin to them. Chester patented his gizmo four years later and sold them from his factory in Farmington, which would go on to manufacture the product that would warm the ears of soldiers in both world wars. Scattered curiosity, earmuffs weren't Chester's only invention. He also developed a type of rake, matchbox, tea kettle, and an umbrella for mailmen, which he did not patent. December 21st has been Chester Greenwood Day in the state of Maine since 1977, and the Chester Greenwood house in his hometown is on the National Register of Historic Places. The slap bracelet also called a snap bracelet, was invented by a high school shop teacher from Wisconsin with the working name the Slap Wrap. While greatly popular in the 1980s, many schools began to ban them because oftentimes the fabric frayed from the covered steel within, resulting in students getting bruised and cut. However, these minor injuries did not affect sales of the fashion weapons, and in 1990 alone, slap bracelets raked in about $7 million. Our next invention, however, has hurt far more people in far worse ways. The Trimbopoline! Trimbopoline! <clears throat> the Trampoline. A contraption covered with a heavy-duty fabric stretched across a metal frame connected by a series of metal springs. Inspired by the life nets that firemen employed in the late 1880s and springboards of the Pablo Fank Circus Royale, 
where legend had it that the trampoline was invented by one of their artists, Du Trampoline, though there is no evidence to support this claim. Trampolines as we know them came to us in 1936 as the result of the work of gymnasts Larry Griswold and George Nissen, who insisted the name derives from the Spanish word for diving board, trampolín. They simply added an E to the end of the word. And the net that you find below the trapeze in a circus inspired the design. In 1942, they opened the Griswold Trampoline and Tumbling Company with the high hopes that it wouldn't just be used for simple jumping, but for new games that trampolines now made possible. Spaceball and Aeroball, which are a little like basketball on trampolines. And both games have the playing area divided into four compartments by mesh walls, each one containing a scoring hole in which a ball is thrown and the games can be played in teams or as individuals. The only difference between Spaceball and Aeroball is in Spaceball, the mesh walls divide one giant trampoline that is shared by all the players, and an arrow ball, each quadrant that's separated by the mesh wall, has its own smaller personal trampoline. I am fortunate enough to have played both of these games several times in my youth, as there was a Spaceball facility about 15 miles away from where I grew up. Spaceball is the more challenging of the two because the shared trampoline makes it harder to get a higher bounce and your competition could throw your bounce off by timing their hits to the trampoline or by using your bounce to propel them even higher in the air, if that makes sense. Both games, however, are equally brutal on your knees. Since its inception, trampolines have not only helped develop gymnasts and acrobats, but World War II pilots, NASA astronauts, divers, and skiers. There are over 300 trampoline parks in the United States. Scattered curiosity, Pablo Fank, who I mentioned before, is referenced in the psychedelic Beatles circus theme being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. And the song's lyrics were lovingly lifted off of an authentic 19th century circus poster advertising the Pablo Fank Circus Royale in Rockdale, England, which mesmerized John Lennon when he bought the antique in January of 1967. Bonus curiosity, Mr. J. Henderson, also mentioned in the Beatles song, is a reference to John Henderson, who was a clown, equestrian, wirewalker, and trampoline artist of the Pablo Fank Circus Royale. The Wacky Wall Walker, or Wacky Wally, was not even really invented by its inventor. A man named Ken Hakuda received the squishy wonder called Taiko as part of a care package that was sent to him by his mother out of Japan. And it was basically the Wacky Wall Walker under a different product name. And if you've never seen one, you might want to go look up the oddity online. They are these octopus-shaped toys that are made out of an adhesive called elastomer that are meant to be thrown against the wall and watched as it awkwardly climbs down the wall with the assistance of gravity. Ken loved his mother's gift so much that he decided to purchase the rights to make the product in the United States at the cost of only $5,000 in 1983 a good investment, as he has turned that $5,000 into 
into an upwards of 80 million since doing so. But not at first. Rollout sales of the Wacky Wall Walker suggested it was a sleeper product, but after the Washington Post did a story on the newfangled doodad, the sales began to climb. Scatter curiosity, the same year the toy was introduced, NBC produced an animated Christmas special titled Deck the Halls with Wacky Walls, starring cartoon wall walkers from the planet Kling Kling named Springette, Stick'em, Wacky, Big Blue, Bouncing Baby Boo, and Crazy Legs, who visit Earth to learn the meaning of Christmas by command of their leader, King Kling Kling. And two of my favorite voice actors helped to bring the colored octopi to life, Tress McNeil and Frank Welker, whose resumes are discussed in better detail in an episode from season one of Scattered Curiosities, Triple D's, The Daffy Donald Dilemma. Sorry to keep plugging old episodes, folks, but if the products we've discussed today thus far have taught me anything, it's that advertising is everything. And since we don't have sponsors here at Scatter Curiosities, it's up to me and you to make the public aware. An invention that did require a little more mechanical know-how to construct was the 1963 3D board game Mousetrap. And if you're anything like me, you have never actually played this game by the rules. You simply build the trap and run it over and over again. But there apparently are rules to this game. Every player gets a mouse-shaped token that moves around the spaces on the board, some of which instruct you to build while other spaces have a number on them. Every time you add on to the mousetrap device, you get a piece of cheese. And the point of the game is to trap the other mice, which is achieved by landing on the turn crank spot. And the crank turns the gears to set the trap in motion. If no mice are under the trap at that time, a player can trade in a piece of cheese to roll the dice to move another mouse on the board in the hopes of putting them under the cage at the business end of the trap. And the rundown of unnecessary steps to activate the trap goes as such. A player turns the crank that activates two gears to pull back a lever, causing a boot to kick a bucket which holds a marble that moves down a stair-like platform to hit a pole with a hand atop it holding a second marble that falls into a bathtub with another hole above a teeter-totter with a diver on one end that gets shot up into the wash tub that is abutted to the pole that holds the mouse-sized cage that shimmies down said pole when aggravated by the diver to trap the mouse beneath it, if there is one. At the time that Mouse Trap came out, there were some legal issues surrounding the design of the trap that is so clearly inspired by the inventions of Professor Lucifer G. Butts, a comic illustrated by the infamous engineer and cartoonist Rube Goldberg. But at the time of litigation, Goldberg was an old man who did not want to get bogged down in the likely years-long battle for royalties. So, he let it go. And we will get to know him and some other famous rubes in our next full-length episode of Scattered Curiosities titled Rubes, Rubies, Rubies, and Rubens. And with that... I would like to thank you for patiently waiting for me to return to the pod waves with Season 2 of Scattered Curiosities. I am greatly enthused to share all of the topics that I have immersed myself in during the break, and I hope to exceed the quality of curiosities that I brought to you in Season 1. Until next time, stay brainy. <laughs> Thank you.
like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.